receive your word only because you have been merciful to us. Oh Lord, if you would simply convince us of this all the way down to the very bottom of our soul. Convince us, Lord, that we are we are only, only, Lord, in the business of receiving mercy. That's, that's how we move and have our being, to receive your mercy. Father God, show us that through your spirit and Lord. May that, may our, our understanding of that show up in how we treat other people. Lord, bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, we're actually going to start our series in 1 Timothy this week. And now, one of the things to remember about a book, about a letter, I suppose you could say, like 1 Timothy, is that when Timothy received this from Paul, he would have read it all in one setting. And there are things you get from a pastoral epistle or from an epistle in general when you read it all in one setting that you don't get when you move slowly throughout. Just so you know, um, we are going to take 13 weeks to look at 1 Timothy. That's a a relatively brisk pace for me. Uh, But Timothy would, of course, when he received this letter from Paul, sat down and read it immediately. That's relevant because I think that there are some perspectives we don't gain unless we approach the letter in that way. And so today I'm going to present to you an overview message dealing with sort of 1 Timothy in general. Specifically, though, I'm going to talk about the purpose that Paul clearly articulates in chapter 3 for why he is writing this letter. So if you'll open the book of 1 Timothy to chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 15 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, before we get into the message itself, I think it's really important pastorally to note this phrase that Paul mentions at the beginning, I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, dot, dot, dot. Now you can think of that line from God's, from Paul's perspective and also from from the perspective of God's providence. So Paul has this plan, right? And his plan is, I'm going to go and see my true son in the faith, 1 Timothy 1, 3, I think. My true son in the faith, I'm going to go and see him and I'm going to tell him all that he needs to know about how to conduct himself in the household of God. But if I get delayed, and I could get delayed, maybe I should go ahead and write this stuff down. Now, one of the interesting ideas there is just that letter writing was a whole thing back in the day. It was kind of a big hassle. It was a big expense. The paper itself was expensive. Uh, you normally hired someone, someone to dictate an amanuensis. And then, of course, there's this principal challenge of just getting the letter wherever you needed it to go. There was no postal system per se at the time. And so you really had to really prioritize, I want people to know this information. And if, you, if I was going to see you, say, in September, and all of that difficulty 
you know, existed for writing a letter, I'd probably just, if it wasn't a super important thing, I'd probably just say, well, this can wait until I see them in September. And we see when we read Paul's writings that he had a, a, an extreme preference for in-person ministry. Letters were always a bit of a concession for him. And so, uh, so God, God arranged this in such a way where for Paul, he's like, okay, is what I need to share with Timothy important enough to write a letter? even though I might see him soon? And the answer is yes. And so that's one thing to note at the beginning of our uh, examination of this particular text. Paul was planning on seeing Timothy, but felt like what he had to share was so important that he wanted to make sure this information got to Timothy and that he went out of his way to kind of create a backup plan to make sure that this information was given. Now, from God's perspective we see that God completely wrecked Paul's plans. I would love for someone, a fairly astute Bible scholar, I would love for someone to write a book on Paul's broken plans. Because when you read all of Paul's writings, you see time and time again that he had these plans to go here and he didn't turn out that way, or he was gonna go here, but he was delayed and so on and so forth. And friends, I, I wanna just speak to you pastorally for a moment. You're not gonna find someone closer to God than Paul. You're not gonna find someone more filled with the Holy Spirit than Paul. And, Listen, friends, he lived his life with plans that were often broken. And I, I want to I present two things to you about that. First of all, by all means, try not to live in chaos. By all means, do your best to be diligent and so on and so forth. But also don't be controlling. Because in the margins of God changing your plans and the margins of God doing different things than you expect, God does all sorts of amazing things. The truth is, is that God wanted Paul to write this letter. He wanted Paul to write this letter. And so he, in his providence, delayed Paul's plans. John Stott writes, Thus by a deliberate providence of God, the New Testament letters came to be written and have been preserved for the edification of the church in subsequent generations. If the apostles' directions regarding the doctrine, ethics, unity, and mission of the church had been given only in oral form, the church would have been like a mapless traveler and a rudderless ship. But because the apostolic instructions were written down, we know what we would not otherwise have known, namely how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. It's just an introductory word about the circumstances that go into the writing of this letter. Now let's look at the main section of the text here. Go back to verse 14 in chapter 3. And let's read this again together. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The first thing we see is this idea of household rules. Household rules. The phrase is how one ought to behave. Now, at the risk of sounding old and curmudgeonly, I do not hear that phrase as much as I used to. And it could be just that my parents aren't around. I don't know. I don't know if this is societal or just personal. I used to hear this phrase a lot. This is how you should behave in this situation, or this is how you should behave in that situation. And there were sort of these objective standards handed down to kids to tell them how to behave in various environments. When I was young... My parents were kind of like protocol officers. You know, we pull up somewhere in a car, getting ready to go into a context, 
And they would tell me, okay, you're about to go into this place, and this is how you should behave. Or you're going into that place, and this is how you should behave. If we were going to church, they would told me how I had to behave in church. And if we were going to go visit my great-grandmother, they would tell me how I should behave in the retirement home. And if we were going to go to an antique store, I was told how to behave there. Now, most of the time, I was told these things after I demonstrated that I did not know. Right? So, so there had to be the first experience of, of, go, of taking your young uh, fidgety son into an antique store. And that was an expensive experience. And then, and then the parent realizes, oh, okay, like I've, got to, I've got to teach him how he should behave in the antique store. Very often, the protocols, the do's and don'ts, were sort of, uh, you know, they were sort of positive and negative. They were do's and don'ts. Like when we would go see your, my grandmother, you know, it was like always make sure you hug your grandmother and make eye contact with her. Don't look at the floor and so on and so forth. That was a do. And then eventually a don't had to arise as well. We were, my brother and I were told you can't race the wheelchairs down the halls. So, you know, there's just like, it's just like, okay, where are you? Like, this is how you should act in this environment. And in many respects, figuring that out as we go kind of is necessary. It's necessary to see what someone doesn't know to inform them of what they need to do or what they should not be doing. What we see in our text that Paul says is that there's a certain way to behave in a certain place. And that certain place is the household of God. Now, Number two point here is not only household rules, but household reasons. Every household has rules. And many households have similar rules, but have them for different reasons. And parents, this is a huge, this is a huge deal. I want you to think about this for a minute. Almost all households have very similar rules, maybe a few extra here and there, depending on the parents, uh, you know, whatever, you know, like, Parents are weird. Like, I know I gave my kids some weird rules. I'm sure, I'm sure you've given your kids some weird But here's the big deal. The rules are important, of course. But boy, those reasons matter a great deal. For instance, and you don't need to always communicate these to your kids, but you need to know them at least. For instance, you know, lots of homes have the rule of no interrupting. No interrupting. But, but one of the reasons could be because you're a kid, you don't have anything worthwhile to say. You know, I mean, that could be a real reason, you know, uh, that, that, that that rule exists in one household. Don't, no interrupting because you're a kid, you don't have anything worthwhile to say. But then, you know, and that same rule can exist somewhere else, and it can be no interrupting because we want to put others first. So the reasons behind the rules, very interesting. That's, that's really where all the life or death emerges in a home and in a church. Most entities of a similar like, most institutions of a similar like, churches, families, whatever. Very similar rules, very often. There's a few strange ones here or there. But really what comes into play more often than anything, it, it kind of spells whether life or death is taking place in that environment, is the reason behind the rule. And so what we see here from Paul is, is yes, there is a certain way to behave in the household of God. And that's what 1 Timothy's about. 1 Timothy's about the household rules. This is how you're supposed to behave in the household of God. But he gives his reasons. And these reasons are compelling, and I want you to see them. Uh, lock in on this phrase, living God. Verse 15, if I delay, so I'm writing you this, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the gathering, the community, 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. His reasons for the rules in 1 Timothy are described here. His reasons for the rules are that this is a church of the living God and is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's, let's meditate on this for a big part of our time together this morning. This phrase, living God, is loaded, loaded with meaning, loaded with biblical meaning, loaded with theological meaning, so on and so forth. I'm just going to present two ideas to you this morning that are reasons for the rules. The first one is, this phrase, living God, is associated with something that theologians call quorum Deo. That's Latin, and if you go to Knox Classical School, you'll learn how to read Latin, uh, and, and your life will be better. No. Uh, Coram Deo simply refers to the idea of living all of your life in the presence of God. So one thing that this church, the household, the household of God, the living God, one, one thing that living God tells us is that we are living our whole lives in the presence of God. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, says, Where does the living God live? Joshua answered the question succinctly. The living God is among you. For this was the essence of God's covenant promise to Israel. I will dwell among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Israel's consciousness that the living God lived among them profoundly affected their community life. Even an elementary lesson in personal hygiene was based on the fact that the Lord God walked among them and must not see anything indecent. And they were incensed when the heathen presumed to defy or insult or ridicule the living God. And he concludes, even more vivid consciousness of the presence of the living God should characterize the Christian church today, for we are the temple of the living God, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what's one reason for the rules? What's one reason for all the rules we'll read in 1 Timothy for how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God? Well, one reason is, is that God is present in our midst. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, God our Savior, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. God our Savior, the one who sent his son to die for us, God is present in our midst. And one of the interesting kind of ideas about this household of faith notion is that, you know, you're always in the household of faith because it's an entity, not, not really a place, right? We did have rules growing up about, about, about what to do when you went to church. We, we went to an enormous church. It was about two blocks big and with many buildings and what appeared to me to be a uh, inexhaustible donut budget. <laughs> and uh, we weren't a sweets family. We didn't, we didn't really have dessert around or anything. But man, you know, every Sunday morning, my brother and I, we, would, we had like a plan. And we would go from Sunday school room to Sunday school room to Sunday school room before anybody even arrived. You know, but by the time we were done going through the education building, we had probably eaten like 4,000 calories, easily, you know, easily. And then we would go sit in church and fall asleep. <laughs> but you, you didn't fall asleep in church until you figured out who the chandelier would kill if it fell. 
Did any of you ever do that in church? You sit in these old churches with the big lighting fixtures as a kid. You're just like, okay, if that fell, that would hit Mr. Smith. Would I be happy or sad about Mr. Smith dying? Who would be at Mr. Smith's funeral? So on and so forth. So, you know, when you're in a physical church, there are rules, and you tell your kids these rules and so on and so forth. But what's really going on here is, is you're in the household of God, and that's not just a place. That's a people. That's a community. You're in a people and a community and so forth. And so one of the reasons why we should keep these rules is because we are in the presence of God. When you're home, you're still in the household of God. You're still in the church. When you're at work, you're still in the household of God. You're still in the church, and so on and so forth. When you're on vacation, which I will be in about uh, eight days, um, praise God, uh, you are still in the household of God. You're still in church. So one of the reasons for the rules is quorum deo. A second reason for the rules is another Latin phrase, missio deo, when that just means the mission of God. So we have quorum deo, which is all of life in God's presence, and then we have Missio Dei, which is the mission of God. Most of the time when this phrase, the living God, appears in Scripture, it is correlated or associated with rivalry or competition. Usually this phrase, when it appears especially in the Old Testament, is something like, our God is living, your God is not. This is sort of, is your God in the bathroom, Elijah joke. You know, like this is... Living God is a term of derision toward all of the so-called competitors of God. So on a number of occasions, you will hear living God presented in contrast to whatever other competition is going on. Well, this is a very important, and I'll, I'll unpack this more. I don't want to take too much time this morning. Very important to understand the city that First Timothy is written to, the, the city that Timothy is pastoring in, and that's the city of Ephesus. Uh, you know, paganism is a lot like any other religion, like there's a political kind of paganism, and I would say that the political pagan world, the, the capital of the political pagan world at the time was Rome, and then of course there's sort of, you know, um, there's just different, different kind of iterations of paganism. I would say that the religious version of paganism, the most religious version of paganism, the capital for that was Ephesus. It was the home of the princess, it was the home of a goddess, and, uh, and, and one of the great wonders of the world, and so on and so forth. And so this was, this was very much to plant a church, to plant a Christian church, and sort of the pagan Mecca was an extremely courageous and uh, ambitious thing to do. In fact, early on in uh, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. You know, this whole idea of not talking about politics, it's just, it's just, it just exposes a great deal of biblical ignorance. It exposes a great deal of ignorance about the times in which the Bible was written. This phrase, God our Savior, the, the, the word Savior, it was already used to describe the emperor. Just like Lord was. And so when God, when, so when Paul is saying, God, our Savior, he's, he's emphatically saying, this, this is the Savior. In fact, in fact, one commentator notes that the, uh, that the possessive hour in this text is sort of like a taunt. It's something like this. You guys have your Savior, and we have ours. 
And so one of the reasons, another reason for the rules, another reason to conduct ourselves as God calls us to in the household of faith is because we are surrounded not only by the presence of God, but his rivals. And it's our job, it's our privilege to live lives that glorify God and show him to be the one true God. So we're living in the presence of God. We're also living in the presence of our enemies. The word living God, the phrase living God, communicates both those ideas. You're living in the presence of God. You're also living in the presence of his enemies. Stand up straight. Show yourself to be a man, kind of biblical language. Do it right. Why? Well, first of all, because God's here. Why else? Because all of his enemies are making counterclaims that they are the way, and they are the truth, and this is Lord, and that is Savior. Therefore, conduct yourselves appropriately in the household of God. This, this sense of rivalry is actually included in another place of the text where Paul says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the Greek word for buttress just means something that exists to stabilize, something that exists to hold fast. And stylos, the Greek word for pillar, is just this idea of raising something up. Again, from Stott, the inhabitants of Ephesus had a vivid illustration of this in their temple of Diana or Artemis. Regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world, it boasted 100 ionic columns, each over 18 meters high, I don't know what that is in American, but it's tall. <laughs> Which together lifted its massive shining marble roof. Just so the church holds the truth aloft. You know, you walked into Ephesus, there had to be, there was no question who was in charge. Diana was in charge. You, you, you could see her rule from miles and miles and miles away. When the sun would hit the gleaming marble, you could see. She's in charge. Friends, when the world looks at our church, do they see Jesus Christ is in charge of this people? Jesus Christ is Lord of these people. He, he says that just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen. So the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. Here then is the double responsibility of the church vis-a-vis -vis the truth. First, as its foundation, to hold it firm so that it does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. Secondly, as its pillar, it is to hold it high so that it is not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. The church is called to both of these ministries. So we can summarize this whole section of there are these rules, they're household rules, and the reasons for these rules are we live in the presence of God and we live in the presence of his rivals. We've got to get this right. But now let's look at another element in this text. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. All right, so here's, here's a tricky thing. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The Greek does not give us a clear sense of whether Paul is speaking directly to Timothy and of Timothy or just more generally, like all y'all, 
is how you know, we would say it in America, all y'all. Uh, it's not clear in the text whether we're talking mostly about how Timothy should behave, how Timothy should, how Timothy should behave as a pastor in this local church, or whether he's talking about how all people would behave. So I thought we'd explore that problem for a minute and try to figure out what's going on. Well, and, and the thing is, is there's good arguments for both. There's, there's good arguments for both ideas. We certainly do see, when we look through the whole book, that Paul tells a lot of people what to do. He tells a lot of people what to do. He, tells, he has instructions for men and women. He has instructions for deacons. He has instructions for widows and for slaves and for the rich. And so certainly in one respect, the whole book of 1 Timothy is like, well, this is how y'all should be acting as members of the household of God. But overall, this letter really does seem to be directed to Timothy. I think the one thing we can say for sure that maybe puts me more on the, on the side of this, he's talking about Timothy in particular, is that household rules, another, another key for you parents, Household rules are utterly dependent on household rulers. In any household, the rules are as real as the ruler of the house makes them. Now, some of you might object or have some concerns with using the phrase household ruler, and that's because you have been lied to. Um, the, The Bible actually uses these kinds of language, this kind of language to talk about people in charge of things. Ruler is just a biblical word. It's been softened to appeal to your pride. So you're uneducated um, because people didn't want to like just explain it to you. No, the word ruler is a totally legitimate word. If you if you wanted to from now on, if you're the head of your household, if you wanted to call yourself ruler, you could, and it would be completely biblical. Um, you know, maybe the reason why you would choose to do that would be interesting. The point is, is like there's no, there's no problem using this word. It's, it's the right word. It's the word that the Bible would use. So what is it? And, and we, we say leader sometimes. It's like, well, actually, it's ruler. That's what it says. But we twist it so that people feel more comfortable. Anyway, so why is a household ruler so important to the household rules? Well, I mean, here's the deal. A household ruler must communicate the rules, and he must conform to the rules, right? Those two things. He must communicate the rules, and he must conform to the rules. Another way of saying this, I think I'll say this again, is a household ruler must keep God's commands, but he must not keep those commands to himself. He needs to do them, and he needs to teach them. He needs to do them, he needs to teach them, he needs to communicate them, and he needs to conform to them. And that's really another key passage in 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both your hearer and your, both yourself and your hearers. Life and doctrine. Speak the rules, teach the rules, live the rules, do the rules. So this is a very key point that I want to center in on, because one of, one of the outcomes I'm praying for as a consequence of preaching through this over the next 13 weeks is that a great number of men would begin to seek the Lord about the possibility of one day, as the church needs, serving as an elder. You know what an elder is, ultimately? It's someone who has chosen, it's a man who has chosen to live like Jesus. 
And you would think with all of the men who call themselves Christian, we would have tons of people lined up. If, if, if you live like Jesus, if you're willing to live like Jesus, which is what it means to be a Christian, it should be reasonable to say that at some point down the road, like not that you would, but that you could, right? That you could. And so one of my big goals of my whole life has been to get as many men as possible, that I have anything to do with as many men as possible to at least be qualified to be an elder. I can't do anything about the calling. But the qualification, this seems like something that we should all aim for. So one of the things that we see in this passage, in 1 Timothy in general, is, is you gotta have, you got to have the household ruler. You know, I don't know how many prayers you have that are bigger than your life. Um, you need some. I mean, a lot of mine are not bigger than my life. A lot of them are like for my knees and my bank account and my kids, you know. Like it's okay to have a lot of small prayers. But you got to have some big ones too. And those big ones ought to be somewhat strategic. And they ought to not be about you, right? They ought to be about everybody and maybe even about the future, maybe even the future of your neighbors, or maybe even your children's children. Like you got to have prayers at that level too. Here's one prayer I would give you to pray. Pray that God would raise up men who pastor churches that both communicate the rules and keep them. Let's pray for that. Oh, and there's one more level of this, and we won't get into it too much today, but you know, there's one thing he doesn't do. He doesn't make up rules. He doesn't write his own rules. He communicates God's rules. He keeps God's rules. He doesn't write his own. And if you want like, like one of those prayers to add to your prayer list that is something more than about you and might be about the, the good of the whole world, pray that God would raise up men who keep his rules and communicate his rules. It will be a game changer for the world. So this idea of you've got to, Timothy, you've got to teach these people what the rules are. This is huge in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4 as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people not to teach any certain doctrines. 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Uh, until, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Just go over and over and over again. He's telling Timothy, you got to tell people how they should behave in the household of God. 1 Timothy 5, 7, command these things as well. 1 Timothy Timothy 6, 2, teach and urge these things. 1 Timothy 6, 17, ask for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So one of the big features we see in the book of 1 Timothy is we need men who will tell the church how to behave. But there's another side to this. And that is we need men who will behave like they're telling the church to behave. We need men who not only communicate the truth but conform their own lives to it. 
And this is the other piece we see in the book of 1 Timothy, working backwards from the end forwards. You've got 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 1 Timothy 6.13 and 14. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and with elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so on and so forth. So we've got this desperate need in the world. Everybody's focused on how broken a society gets when fathers walk away. And it's absolutely true. But friends, there's such a thing as a church father. The Bible just calls him an elder. And you want to talk about the church of Jesus Christ, the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, going through hard times. What happens when the men who should be keeping and teaching the truth stop? What happens? What does the church look like when that happens? Well, it looks like a broken home looks. It looks like a home where the father walked out looks. Only the, the stakes are even higher, believe it or not. So let's just review what we've covered so far. First of all, big idea number one, church is the household of living God. Like any household, there are rules. There are reasons for these rules. One of them is God is among us. Number two, so are his rivals. The second idea, household rules need household rulers. He must communicate them. He must keep them. Three objectives for this sermon series. Number one, pastorally, um, I love you guys. Pray for you. Pay attention to you. Pay attention to your faces, how you, how you walk, how you talk. And I just feel that there many of us, perhaps, have really gone through a big season of hustle and are weary. And maybe spiritually, not super great. Our hearts have been warmer in the past. Well, friends, the only thing I know that fixes that for real is like just to look at Jesus. And Paul, man, he, he, he shows us Jesus in 1 Timothy. So one of the things you, know, you hear in this sermon, you're like, rules, 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 rules. It's like, yeah, I know. That, that's the main theme of the book. But the reasons are there too. And, and the reason is, behold our God, Jesus Christ. He's glorious. And so one thing I'm praying is, is that some people would go through a time of refreshing and their hearts would be warmed back to the Lord. Two, uh, reformation. I think we get sloppy over time. We act like life doesn't really matter, like the, the little questions of obedience don't really matter. And we stop wondering, like, how should I behave? How does God want me to behave? We just do what we want for the most part. So I'm praying that in addition to refreshing that some of us would have some reformation in our behaviors and the way we live our lives. And number three, raising up pastors. I think that this book will remind us how important pastors are. I feel like I have gotten to the age finally where I can talk about pastoring in a completely like, disinterested way. Like I just won't be doing this that much longer. It's really not about me. 
It's about the future. The world needs fathers. The world, the church needs pastors. John Calvin once wrote that pastors are the sinew by which believers are held together in one body and elsewhere in his institutes. He wrote, for neither are the light and heat of the sun nor meat and drink so necessary to sustain and cherish the present life as is the apostolic and pastoral office to preserve a church in the earth. And so I hope you will join me in praying, not only for our church, but just the church, the global church, for people in Pakistan, for people in Iran, for people all over the world, that in the coming years, God would give us an incredible gift of mercy. He would raise up men who speak it and keep it. For communion, let's just go back to our text. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. This is the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, we're speaking of. The one thing I didn't touch on because I had to save it for communion is here's, your big, here's a real big why. Here's a real big reason built into that word household. Do you realize that everything about our salvation and sanctification has adoption as its aim? That God is not offering anyone here pardon for your sins so that you may go your own way and live your own life with less guilt. He has done all he has done through Christ coming to die for your sins, not so that you could live life under yourself, but that so you would live with him as his child. Does it ever blow your mind that the God of the universe moved heaven and earth so that you who are saved could call him Father? In 1 John 3, John just, just kind of jumps out of his boots for a minute, his sandals, I guess. He says... It just, this is this rhapsody of praise. Like, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So I don't want to step all over that word household and fail to mention the first step. And that is that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And then God saw fit in the suffering of Christ to bring many sons to glory. And so I want you to come and partake of this table, celebrating Jesus, and let your heart warm up to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good.